Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. A little room shift today, and unfortunately, they weren't able to deliver breakfast food today, but we'll make do. Take a second cup of coffee. Um, I am delighted to have Miguel Ruggiero here as our speaker, and to introduce him to us is Corey Siegel. Corey is the Section Chief of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, and I'm proud to announce our newest minted full professor of medicine. So, Corey, come and talk to us about Miguel. Thanks, Rich. Good morning. Thanks for coming. It is my honor and privilege to introduce Dr. Miguel Riguero, who's a good friend and colleague of mine now for about 15 years or so. Miguel uh, went to undergraduate at University of Pennsylvania, then medical school at Drexel. After there, he moved to Boston for a number of years, where he was a resident and then fellow at Beth Israel Medical Center before he moved to UPMC in Pittsburgh, where he really grew his career and grew one of the most successful IBD centers in the world. From there, he was snatched up by the Cleveland Clinic about a year and a half ago, where he became the chair of gastroenterology and hepatology and the vice chair of their Digestive Disease and Surgery Institute, which, as you know, is a huge, huge program with 80-something GI faculty plus everybody else. So really just an amazing place and amazingly important and and big job. Miguel's been successful in every realm of academic medicine. He's a decorated teacher. He runs one of our uh, most important IBD conferences of the year nationally. He has published over 200 papers, and now he's the editor-in-chief of the IBD journal called IBD360. He is known as an amazing educator and clinician and truly has changed the field in many ways for inflammatory bowel disease. If if you're ever dealing with patients post-operatively for inflammatory bowel disease, specifically Crohn's disease, it was really Miguel's work that drove how we manage those patients. And to change a field by one single line of work is really impressive and has absolutely had an influence on all of us and all of our patients. And one area where he's really teaching us now is the center, this idea of a medical home and how we should be thinking about patients in a medical home, not just in general, general internal medicine, but also from subspecialty medicine. So Miguel, it's really a privilege to have you here. Thank you for coming as our IBD visiting professor this year, and welcome to Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Thank you, Corey, for that uh, very kind introduction. Um, I'm honored to be here, and it's uh, a pleasure to present the medical home model to all of you. Now, I know in the room probably there are different specialties. There are internists, primary care, family doctors, and then subspecialists. And I think this new model of care is intriguing as we look into this value-based proposition. Some of you probably could teach me a lot about this if your primary care have been in patient-centered medical homes. Um, but this is really an emerging concept. And as we work with our payers, I think that this concept is becoming at the forefront of medicine and probably the next decade. So these are my disclosures. But probably my most important disclosure, and being in New England, I'm going to put this up, and I think you'll probably cringe, is that I still will remain a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. So as uh, Corey said, I've been uh, in Pittsburgh for nearly 25 years before moving to Cleveland. Not quite a Cleveland Browns fan, but you'll see at the end, I'm trying to warm up to that concept. So what are the, the learning objectives? They're obviously to understand the patient-centered medical home, but really delve into this specialty medical home concept, and what does that look like uh, compared to traditional centers of excellence, which probably many of you work in here at Dartmouth. 
and then get into this concept of population health around specialty care. So um, a lot of what I'm going to present is some data, but more it's going to be storytelling in terms of my journey with this, but also what I've learned from the payers, uh, from also the other primary care physicians, pediatricians, and others. So why would we even consider a medical home for inflammatory bowel disease? And then you could substitute rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, pick your chronic disease of choice. The same model is going to apply. Well, I think unless you live under a rock, you know that the national health care expenditures are exploding in this country. And despite even in the last five years attempts to control the financial burden, this is still burgeoning in a way that we have not recognized. And this will soon outstrip our GDP in the way that we can pay for medicine. So unless we wrap our minds around this concept, I think we're headed towards a financial situation which will impact medical practices and already has impact medical practices in a potentially negative way. So what are some of the features of the cost equation? And this is probably not news to anybody in the room. And at the end of this, you see IBD, but really pick the disease that you see, and it's going to have the same concepts and the same chemistry, if you will. So what are the high-utilizer, high-cost patients? Well, what has been shown in this one study is that minority race unemployment, healthcare disparity is still an enormous problem in this country, and this is an aspect as far as driving costs. Comorbid conditions that include coping, psychosocial diseases. Um, certainly the opioid epidemic has hit in a way not only impacting the medical care of patients, but financial costs that equate with the pain that's driven uh, to these opioids. Now we get into specifics related to IBD, which is surgery. Um, and we know that there are certain features as far as IBD that drive costs. But it's interesting, above that last line of IBD, really those equations can apply to most chronic diseases that we see in medicine. So when we move into this idea of a specialty medical home, the primary care medical homes have been around for nearly 15 years. This is not a new concept. Again, many of you may work in these environments. The ACOs are really derived out of this as well, where you contract with a payer around usually initially global payment, then shared savings, shared risk, and now we're talking about fully capitated models. But this is an idea where the principal care of patients come to a specialist. So inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. I'm working with my rheumatology colleagues right now in uh, Cleveland, rheumatoid arthritis, neurology, multiple sclerosis. Our hepatologists are now looking at fatty liver disease, where the patient identifies with the specialist for their principal care. And we partnership with insurance plans and health plans around these cost equation models. And I think that these medical homes really would be diseases that are chronic. So a bleeding peptic ulcer is not going to be a patient we put in a medical home. They come in, there's an acute care, and they go home. Interestingly, and I was walking around your hospital with Corey yesterday, your ICU beds are increasing, your acute care facilities are increasing. Hospitals are changing into very acute care facilities where the chronic care is being pushed out in a way that we have not seen before. So what's the secret sauce of any medical home? And this applies to anything, and all of you know this, and the interns and residents in the room 
probably see this very early in their training. Really, I think the secret sauce is this, in, in at least in GI, this brain-gut relationship, the psychosocial care and aspects of chronic diseases that drive unplanned care, ER visits, hospitalization, pain, and ultimately cost as well. So we did a study when I was in Pittsburgh, and in the top left of this slide is the map of Pennsylvania. You could put New Hampshire in this slide and it would look a little bit different, but um, you would probably get the same idea. And there's something called a hot spotting analysis for those that haven't done this before. Essentially, hot spotting, if you look in the top left in Pennsylvania where the red is, are where are the patients deriving most of their care? Well, in Pennsylvania, the two big cities are on the eastern side, Philadelphia, on the western side is Pittsburgh. So probably not news. You could figure that out. If you did the same hot spotting in New Hampshire, you would light up around Lebanon and around the area of Dartmouth Medical Center. That would be a hot spotting analysis. You probably don't need to do the analysis to figure that out. Well, look at the bottom left-hand slide of this slide. And then what we did at UPMC is we looked at all of our hospitals through the UPMC system. There's each one of those represents a bar. And the largest bar on the left-hand side are our university hospitals. So where did most of our Crohn's and ulcerative colitis patients go for their tertiary or quaternary care? To the university hospital. And then we saw a smattering of smaller numbers across the region. Again, no surprise. This is not something that probably you need an analytic tool to figure out. But now get to the top right of this. And then what you can see is that from the $37 million spent on IBD and hospitals, 24 million of that came from one hospital system. Again, maybe no surprise. But the surprise, the money shot, if you will, is the bottom right. There were 34 patients that accounted for $10 million in charges. So the highest utilizer patients, the ones that you see repeatedly in the hospital, the residents probably round on them in the hospital and cringe when they get that consult to go to that patient. And I'm not being facetious and cynical, but these are the patients that come back to the ER repeatedly. They're also the patients that are driving the cost. These are the patients that you better believe if you sit down with the CEO of an insurance health plan, these are the patients in chronic care model that they want us to figure out as physicians how to take care of. And if we don't come to the table and work with them, they will ultimately dictate how we care for these chronic care patients. So with this dawned on me about seven years ago that we probably in IBD, and again, substitute your du jour disease into this, we actually said, you know, we're kind of providing this medical home concept to our patients. They recognize us almost as their primary care. They get a sore throat, they call us. Or if they have a primary care, we're working with them, but they're on two different types of biologics. They've had surgeries, and the primary care doctor understandably says, you know what, I don't feel comfortable with this. Talk, talk to your gastroenterologist about your sore throat. So I went to our health plan at UPMC, and this is where it's a difference between UPMC where I was and Cleveland Clinic where I am. UPMC had its own health insurance plan. So this initially made it very easy in an integrated health delivery system to work with a payer. And I'll fast forward at the end to Cleveland Clinic, where I think the model is actually more challenging, but to me more appealing, not having one single payer in the mix. But nonetheless, I went to the CEO of the health plan, rolled out uh, an idea. Actually, I thought they were going to kick me out of the room because this sounded so crazy to me at the time. But they said, you know what? 
this is something that we'd like to do because of those 34 patients that are deriving $10 million in cost for the health plan each year. So we came up and put together a team. So I mentioned a minute ago that the secret sauce in medical homes is psychosocial care. I absolutely still believe that. But the second key ingredient is the team-based approach. And I think most medical schools now, very early in the first year and beyond, are getting into this team-based concept. It's not a single provider anymore for chronic care or even acute care patients. It's this concept of multiple providers. So for the IBD portion, and again, this may look different for different diseases, we include the primary care, we include the gastroenterologists, the surgeons, the nurse practitioners, dietitians, and then the psychosocial components. These are the key ingredients for us in a multidisciplinary care center that's uh, setting up the medical home. So I'm going to just walk you through now, rather than show you a lot of data slides with a lot of words, and just tell the story of how we do this in Pittsburgh and how I'm doing this now in Cleveland. So one of the things that I always get in trouble, and I don't know if there are administrators in the room, so usually I get in trouble with what I'm about to say, but central schedule is the worst thing that's ever happened to modern medicine. I don't know if you use it. It's a disaster. Uh, so, so the administrators usually are throwing darts at me, and then everybody else that are physicians who understand this are clapping. But the, th the realization is one of the most unpersonal, decentralized, or what I should say, anti-patient-centered approaches is the central uh, scheduling concept. We had it in Pittsburgh, and we certainly have it in Cleveland. And the problem, as you know, is, and this isn't a problem, the central schedulers are not the problem. These are wonderful people. They are extremely skilled. It's just the system, the way it's set up to have 30,000 calls come in and try to navigate this is impossible. So what we were able to do in Pittsburgh and I'm doing in Cleveland is convincing that we actually need our own schedulers. We need human beings, people that are integrated into our care team. The scheduler, secretaries, became as vital to the team as the physician. So this to me is the, there wasn't uh, who's the hierarchical dominant person in the group. We're all equal. And what we actually trained our central schedulers to do is start the motivational interview. So Eva Sigethy, who's a psychiatrist that worked with me in Pittsburgh, and now we have actually a whole team of innovational um, interviewers in Cleveland, the narrative starts with the phone call with the patient calling in. And the central scheduler will start this by saying, what are the top three problems that you have and what are the top three things that you want to get out of the visit? They start that on the phone the patient then fills it out in the office. This is an incredibly simple concept. We need to ask our patients, what do they want out of the visit? So in a minute, the handwriting on this patient, she, I don't have her name, so this is all de-identified. But this is a 34-year-old severe Crohn's patient where IBD is not the main problem. She had been on three different biologics, and me as a gastroenterologist who has this interest in immunology was about to go into the room and talk to her about therapeutic drug levels and the newest agent, and wow, we have this great clinical trial, and kind of get into this whole biology of IBD. Look at what she wrote, though, what the top three problems are. Public transportation sucks, I'm stressed out of my mind, and I have pain in my bones. So here I am thinking about therapeutic drug levels in the next novel trial, and this is really what's driving her narrative in terms of her journey with her IBD. Yes, her IBD may be causing some of this, 
but indirectly as a single mom who can't pay for her medicines, who doesn't know how to get to the doctor's office, this is the reality of her care. And then ask her, what do you want out of the visit? I want more energy. She wants her psychiatrist to come up with a magical pill called chillaxin, and she wants a massage. And we laugh about this, but the reality is what I've learned in Pittsburgh, and now as I move to uh, Cleveland, using complementary medicine and some of these aspects of what our patients really want is very valuable. So getting into the patient-centeredness of having the patients tell us what they want, I can't stress enough. So all of a sudden, me going in the room thinking we're going to do one thing changed her visit entirely. I had her spend more time with the social worker and the psychologist than she did with me as the gastroenterologist. And she spent time with her patients who are volunteers in the clinic. One of them has been in the situation that she had been as a single mom who couldn't pay for her medicines. So the narrative changed just by simply asking the patient, what do they want out of the visit? So then we came up with a concept, and again, this is kind of a low-tech whiteboard of showing. In Cleveland, we do a lot of these huddles as well. So everything's huddles in Cleveland now. We do team huddles daily, two times a day. There are a lot of metrics that we follow around this. But essentially, this is just a whiteboard example of the rooms of the patients, and each um, uh, initials are the patients, the numbers of the rooms, and then we just have our headshots, and we just kind of work them from room to room. Right now in Cleveland, we run six rooms simultaneous with different of our workers going through each of the rooms, and the nurses become the air traffic control of the entire clinic to say who needs to go in each room. And we actually use what the patients tell us coming in, what their problems are, to decide who maybe need to spend more time in that room. You know what? Yeah, this patient has an obstruction. They probably need a colorectal surgeon more than anything. Let's make sure they get slotted in early the visit. This patient's coming in malnourished and has a lot of dietary questions. Let's have our dietitians start off the visit, the single mom, the social worker, et cetera. You get the idea. But this concept of a team-based approach. And then again, the huddle. So quick card flips, if you will. You do this in the hospital all the time. You go down, you kind of take the list of names. You quickly go down and say, what are the problems? Same thing as the outpatient. We do this quickly during the clinic, and we do this after the clinic as well. Now, we're academic centers, so we do like to prospectively collect data. Ben Click, who came with me from Pittsburgh now to Cleveland, I put in charge of the entire prospective registry. So we have a registry consent uh, set up. We have tablets where the patient enters quick uh, patient-reported outcome data, enter that into the computer, and we're going to follow this prospectively. And these are just some scores that we use. You don't have to worry. Some of them are psychosocial, some of them are IBD, but you can put in the score that's related to your disease process. One thing I'll tell you is if you don't keep this simple, patients don't do it, providers won't do it, and they drop off. So whatever you collect, make it very simple and very meaningful. Too much becomes a problem. And then we use the good old-fashioned telephone. So Patients, at least in Pittsburgh and now in Cleveland, the same thing. They hate driving in to see us. They would rather stay at home an hour away, two hours away, than coming in and see us. So one of the things we've navigated is simply doing more telephone calls. So this is kind of the cheapest form of telemedicine. Now, it has evolved. We're, we're doing much more telemedicine 
And then and I'll come back at the end, but just give you a preview. The CEO of Cleveland Clinic about three weeks ago publicly said that by the year 2023, Cleveland Clinic will be 50% virtual visits. 50% of our contact with patients will not be in person. I can tell you already, being at Cleveland Clinic and, and using this on a regular basis, it is unbelievable the power of telemedicine. So what we've integrated into our medical home is an entire telemedicine platform that's EPIC and HIPAA compliant. Um, there are billing, and I can get into the details administratively if you'd like at the end, but there are ways that you can do this. Some insurances actually pay for this. CMS is actually in 2020, 2021, looking at telemedicine as a billable code. So this is something that I think the commercial insurances will follow. And then I think what comes out of this idea of this medical home is truly population health. I flipped back to my old job in, in Pennsylvania, but when you look at actually starting regions in the western part of Pennsylvania where I've been, and we were starting to look at the region that we were starting to impact with the medical home, this spreads beyond just the city. Probably New Hampshire, you could argue you could do the entire state, but this becomes more of a neighborhood. This becomes more of a population that you're capturing with the payer around a single disease. And then we have weekly meetings. I'll tell you a couple of uh, the people in the room, and Corey knows this. One of the things we did early is we embedded patients or their families into the medical home as volunteers. We had them go through training. They got HIPAA compliance. They actually visit our patients in the hospital. If we don't have the most important stakeholder, which is the patient, embedded in our teams, I think that that's a mistake. And I've done that in Cleveland. I did that in Pittsburgh. And it was interesting when we started this way back when, I actually had the patient volunteers who were approved say, let's take you through the entire journey from the phone call to seeing the, uh, us in the office to the whole entire experience and tell us everything that was good, tell us everything that was bad. So I remember at the end of one, they said, Dr. Ruggiero, there were 37 things that were terrible, one thing that was good. I'm thinking, wow, humble pie. I mean, I was thinking we were actually probably doing a good job, but the reality, and it wasn't necessarily the healthcare. What were the 37 things that were bad? I hated the way I had the schedule at the time, central scheduling. I had to call back three times. I got disconnected. I didn't understand the process. Then when I drove in, I got lost. I didn't have very good instructions. They told me I could valet. The valet told me I couldn't. I had to go park. It's interesting. You think this sounds silly, but think about the patient's journey to get to you that day and all of the different steps. So what we actually started doing, and this is an interesting project, and it's not novel to us, is have the patients, have them take them through the journey, look at the steps, break it down from an analytical standpoint, and then you can start to deconstruct ways that we can improve that. So then I asked, well, what is one thing I did because that was the one thing I was thinking, like, okay, what's, what's good? And they said, you smiled when you came into the room. And it's interesting. Actually, um, there's a whole health and wellness uh, uh, center, Michael Royzen, I don't know if you've heard of his name at Cleveland Clinic, and Len Calabrese, who's a rheumatologist. There's this whole wellness program. Um, and they actually have smile therapy. So it's interesting. There was actually a Japanese study looking at physicians who smiled and the response of patients. So at least I did one thing well. But it's important to integrate our patients. 
So how did we do with the medical home? Uh, these are data, again, from Pittsburgh, but I'm, I'm happy as we go through this to hopefully come back and show you what we've done in Cleveland over time. So I'm not going to go through the kind of all the methodology except to say that, yes, we prospectively collect data. From a health plan standpoint, you know, the two things that they care most about, well, one, it's called unplanned care, but the two things under that are ER visits and hospitalizations. Those are the two things that drive healthcare costs equal to biologics for IBD. So if we can impact unplanned care, that's already changing the cost equation. So the question is, how did we do? So one of the outcomes, like I said, was unplanned care, but then we were interested in just normal disease activity, quality of life, and some other metrics as well. So Crohn's disease activity, and I broke this down into quartiles, the left-hand side, the first lower quartile, and the upper fourth quartile. And the upper fourth quartile are the highest utilizer patients. These are the patients coming back and forth to the hospital. Interestingly, what you see, Harvey Bradshaw Index, that's just an activity score for Crohn's disease. After they were enrolled in the medical home, so pre-medical home are the dark bars, after medical home are the light gray bars, we we're actually able to show a decrease in disease activity. And this had really nothing to do with putting them on medical therapy or doing anything necessarily for their IBD. So it also tells you the subjectivity of these scores. The interesting thing is, though, the lowest quartile probably doesn't need a medical home. These are what I call the green zone patients. They see you once a year, they're on a low dose of some medicine, they feel great, they're not having a problem, they're going to school, they're going to work, they're not being disrupted. Probably those are not the patients that need a high intensity medical home, unlike the highest utilizer patients. And if anything, actually, we showed that we probably worsen their score. So I think there's a Hawthorne effect if we start asking them over and over, yeah, that can be positive but that can also be negative. What about ulcerative colitis? The same story. We were able to impact the disease activity for ulcerative colitis, where in the lowest quartile, not as much. This is kind of the money shot. This is where the insurance plans look at these medical homes and, and whatever new model of care. Some of you may be in, involved in new models of care that aren't medical homes, but you better believe behind the scenes are the business part of this and the insurance and looking at this. So there's pre and post for ER visits, pre and post for hospitalization. So prior to coming into the medical home, in our patient cohort, which at the time um, weren't many patients, we had 510 emergency room visits and 209 hospitalizations. And that's a lot. If you look at it too, what that drives in terms of radiographic tests, endoscopy, and what we were able to do is, through the course of the year, just simply involving these patients in a medical home, we were able to significantly decrease unplanned care. Some of the other aspects of their care as well, but significantly decrease the unplanned care. That translated for the medical, the health insurance plan, to about $42 million, which is a significant savings when you look at all the ER visits and hospitalizations. Now, the question is, we didn't fix everybody. So what continued to drive care? Well, Medicaid, we actually found a high rate of continued high utilizers for Medicaid, which you could argue has to do with healthy economics and education as well, probably bundled into that. Interestingly, if the patients had come in already on three biologics, probably no surprise, there was a refractory group of patients that were impacted. 
and steroids and opioids. So kind of the, the classic story, at least in IBD, of steroids, but opioids as well, which again, anybody sitting in the room, this is not uh, news to. So let me take you through just a story of a patient. Um, this isn't her real name, but this is a real patient. And this is actually somebody we saw in the medical home. And I think this will drive home the point of kind of where, where this on a fundamental level with clinicians <laughs> that see these patients all the time. So she's 25, Crohn's. She's been on an anti-TNF. Interestingly, and you've probably seen this countless times, about 10 years ago in the United States, there was a dictum by the government to say, we need to control pain. Pain has to be a metric we follow. What happened overnight in the ERs? Overnight started to control pain very effectively. How did they do it? IV dilated. You get a shot, you start on a narcotic, you get a short script, you go home. I'm not saying this cynically, but this is the reality. We've seen this in, in with dentists, we've seen this in ERs, we've seen this across healthcare. She was given an opioid 10 years ago, and she essentially became addicted to opioids. We recently did a colonoscopy. IBD is not driving her care. She is actually what we would consider almost remission or extremely mild disease. Chronic pain, she's depressed. She says, I wish I were dead. She has depression, panic attacks, and she's been on multiple antidepressants. And she's your 5 o'clock patient on a Friday that was added on at the end of the day. The reality is this is what we see. How can you deal with this patient in 15 minutes with limited resources? These are the patients that you know what's going to happen 5 o'clock Friday where you're seeing her and you're trying to do your best. She's going to the ER that night or the next morning because probably in that quick time, none of us, even in a medical home, would be able to fix her problem acutely. So I took a screenshot of her epic. So you can see the dates. This is back in 2015. And over basically a six-week period of time, she had been to the ER 14 times. And then this is a screen test shot of all of her radiographic tests in one year. She had 19 CAT scans in one year. How many of these CAT scans helped her? None. Well, if radiation were a treatment for Crohn's disease, we're probably doing a very good job because she's well-radiated at this point. But the sad reality is these are all of the radiographic tests that she's had in one year. Why is that? She goes to the ER. She has pain. What happens? They get a CT scan. What else happens? She's given IV dilated, short prescription for narcotics, and she goes home. She's not just going to one ER. She's going to multiple ERs. So she enters into the medical home. We kind of wrap her around, this team around her, not only from a physician-gastroenterologist standpoint, but really the psychosocial part, the pain part, the patient-volunteer part, and we start to try to change her narrative and change her experience. So this is after entry into the medical home, and you can see my name here. Now, many of you will cringe as you look at how many times we actually saw her and go, there's no way I want to do this. Um, so we were seeing her sometimes twice a week. Now, the reality is, yes, my name is up there as the physician, but the reality is some of my visits were literally walking in the room, connecting with her for two minutes, but then the social worker and the psychologist spent an hour with her. And then we started to change the narrative, and our health plan said, would you like social workers and nurses to go to her home? And actually started to send patients to her home. Again, this is a model that's different than what we're used to, but you can see the ER visits and hospitalizations and CT scans drop off by doing this. 
So we weren't perfect. We took her from what I call a red zone to a yellow zone. Green is obviously the ideal. But we started to change some of her biopsychosocial uh, uh, input in terms of pre and post medical home. And I think as we look at the IBD medical homes in our triple aim that we've talked about, we certainly have opportunities around this. I will say that there are certainly still challenges in terms of payment models. Actually, team burnout, so physician burnout is a hot topic and button. You probably talk about this daily, and those sitting in the front row probably sweat about this all the time, and you probably have grand rounds on it, and you have like these group sessions. Believe me, this is, this is something that's happening everywhere. Happening in Pittsburgh, certainly happening in Cleveland. The interesting thing is we have a big patient uh, physician burnout group, believe it or not, at Cleveland Clinic. Team-based care actually leads to less physician burnout. So when you're part of a team, you're not alone on an island taking care of these patients. When you're part of a team, one, it actually does become fun. I know that's something they sit, sit here and go, yeah, he's blowing smoke. But the reality is when I'm in a clinic seeing 27 patients like I saw on Tuesday, and I have four team members with me who are all coming in and out of rooms and helping me with these patients. And you could say, this is hard to apply to the community. This is hard to apply to some of the other areas of medicine. I get all of that. But the reality is when we start to work in these team-based approaches, the physician burnout also becomes less. So let me talk to you a little bit about traditional center of excellence and where I think we're moving. So what's the center of excellence? We all work in this now, and this is going to hit home because this is probably uh, what you're doing and what we're certainly doing as well. So the traditional IBD center of excellence, center of excellence, whatever you want to call it, the center is built around the healthcare team. This is historically how we've done things, and this is the common scenario. The gastroenterologist or the specialist serves as the consultant, is referred patients usually by the primary care doctor or family doctor or other physician. The gastroenterologist or the specialist becomes fairly tunnel visioned on Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. And so how many times a day does a gastroenterologist, rheumatologist, neurologist, surgeon see a patient and they say, that's not in my disease complex. What do you hear them say next? Go to your primary care. Patients before them, they have a symptom. It doesn't fit into that clean box as a specialist. Go back to your primary care. How are you paid RVUs? I mean, you probably are living this world that we all are living. So volume-based proposition for payment. Believe me, when I was in Pittsburgh and when I'm in Cleveland, the same thing. IBD itself doesn't make much money for the gastroenterologist, but you better believe the downstream benefit to surgery, radiology, pathology. And the executive level administrator and chief financial officers that look at these disease narratives in terms of finances, they get it and they realize it. So how do you hire more nurses? How do you hire more support staff? Isn't to say what me as the gastroenterologist is making, but what is this making to the system? So this downstream benefit. The other thing with the RVUs, by the way, that I did in Cleveland, I flipped their hepatologist and their IBD and did a 0.6 Sullivan-Cotter model, which basically means that the RVU for cognitive-based physicians, hopefully I don't get in trouble saying this now, RVU for a cognitive-based physician should be different than it is for the proceduralist or those that have higher RVUs. If we don't do that, then you're going to basically demoralize the cognitive-based physicians. So we used a 0.6 equation for IBD physicians and hepatologists. 
And the institutional support is paying for these centers. The hospital systems, based on the downstream benefit, are paying for the centers. What's the new model look like, this new kind of specialty medical home, and what's the difference? Well, I think a patient-centered medical home is going to look like this. The patient's at the center of the model, not the healthcare team necessarily. The gastroenterologist will serve as the principal care provider not necessarily replacing the primary care, but serves as the principal care. And we work with an interdisciplinary team that doesn't say, go back to your primary care, says, let's try to figure out how we're gonna take care of you. Maybe that's working with the primary care. Maybe that's bringing them into the team. But this idea of let's help you, we're gonna help you today with that symptom that normally I'd say, please leave my office and go to your primary care doctor. And now we get into not volume, but value-based care. And interestingly, the payers are starting to collaborate. So contracts out of Cleveland now around value-based propositions are looking at paying for some of our social workers. When I was in Cleveland or Pittsburgh, the same thing happened where the payers were actually paying for some of the team members. So I think the four ingredients, we need to practice smart medicine. So do you need that CAT scan again? Probably not. Do you need 100 blood tests when probably a CBC is all? So that's common sense, but that's, that does drive up costs when we over-prescribe. Uh, the key ingredient has to also include psychosocial care and pain management. Any chronic model, the second point, has to be part of it. If we don't include psychosocial care in our chronic models, I think we're going to be behind the eight ball. And we need physician buy-in. I'll tell you, and I'm not going to show, ask for a show of hands, but 90% of gastroenterologists will not want to do this model. Why? Because this is a very different model than the way we are classically trained in doing lots of scopes and seeing patients as consultants. However, if we don't come to the table with our insurance plans, and if we don't figure this model out, we will be told what to do, and capitation will be coming. And capitation is going to look a lot different than what we're working in now. So I think we'd rather be at the table helping them decide these uh, new models of care. And then obviously, as I mentioned, we need to collaborate with our payment team. So I'm just going to end with a few slides on Cleveland. So I moved the uh, medical home from Pittsburgh to Cleveland, not physically. It's not a physical place. It's this virtual concept. One of the team members I put up in the top right was one of our superstar fellows, Ben Click, who's now with me and has done unbelievable work. Um, but I just put some of the members. So in the last year, I hired and built, we have three physicians. Uh, Sonny Kazi was in Boston. Some of you may know him. He's coming in July. Uh, we have a nurse practitioner. We have a dietitian. We have an RN. We just actually hired our second RN yesterday. I was happy that went through. And then we have our psychologist that's coming. So this is kind of the team-based approach in building this model. And these are just some of the people, our dietitian, nurse practitioner, our nurse coordinator. And again, it's a team that comes together in clinic, but also we meet regularly about this. I think, and this is probably happening here as well, we're getting away even just from the medical home and getting now into these medical neighborhoods. And one of the things, and I'm just showing you a screenshot, we have unbelievable analytic people that work with me in Cleveland. We're building out, and I'm not going to, I don't expect you to read the slide. These are just showing you some screenshots of our weekly meetings. We're integrating into Epic an e-consult that triages into a medical home and essentially gives the primary care doctor an easy button. 
If we don't make things easy, they don't happen. So how can you access a patient in the primary care's office that integrates? We're trying to do this through digital technology and looking at certain processes to do this. And this is kind of the neighborhood, which is launching next month in Cleveland. We built the home. Now we're building this out to essentially include the entire ACO process that we're involved with. Um, we have about 20,000 covered lives in Ohio. Now, when you consider national and international, it's much larger. And obviously, we're trying to figure out, can we even do this on a global basis now that um, Cleveland Clinic London is going to be starting next year. So Abu Dhabi, London, Florida, Toronto, uh, and China is probably going to come uh, next. And then we have to leverage technology. Uh, remote monitoring, many of you in the room are probably much more advanced in this than I am, but we actually have these remote monitoring platforms where we can keep the patient at home and look at how we uh, take care. We have a care gap registry, which you might know already. Epic has some, in do you use Epic, by the way? Yeah. So Epic has some incredible tools. This care gap registry, if you haven't heard of it, um, maybe you're using it already. It's actually very good. It's already built in Epic. You can model it based on your own. Ben Click has become my master at this because he's really taking this on. But this is a great way to create a registry real time in your system with not a whole lot extra work. Um, virtual visits, like I said, Cleveland Clinic, we're, we're really looking at increasing our virtual visits. Um, I have a block each week where I do these, and I'll see patients from across the country. So the way we do this, just to be just blunt about the business, it's a $130 charge to the patient. They enter their credit card. Yes, this sounds very businesslike. They enter their credit card for the virtual visit. If the insurance company pays for it, great. It's a completely covered cost. I was worried about that. Cleveland Clinic's very smart. That's the price point they realized was going to be the cost. I was very worried 130 sounded like a lot. But when you look at patients, if they come from two hours away or more to park, to pay for gas, to take off time from work, then the cost equation becomes real. So the patients love them. I was also worried that in a 30-minute period, I was going to be way behind. My average time for the most complex virtual visit is 23 minutes. It's kind of interesting. There's a virtual waiting room. You can see them in the waiting room. The patients all collect there. And then you start to log on at the time. Patients get right to what they want. It's kind of, it's a Skype visit. You're just kind of Skyping with them. Right away, they get to it. So within five minutes, I'm looking at an Epic I'm entering. They can enter a lot of their biometric information as well. And they, they have questions that they send. So by 23 minutes, I'm just, I'm almost at the end of my visit going, this is unbelievable. In clinic, I always run late, but virtual visits, it's interesting, the power of the psychology of actually the Skype, and it seems to be different. I think we're looking now to connect and scale. The payers are looking at this. National healthcare providers are looking at connecting and scale. I think that that's the next step. And then just remember, we always have to be able to adapt to our environment. Thank you very much. Miguel, that was fantastic and eye-opening and how you're really deconstructing medicine and putting it back together, I think, in a way that is, is appealing to um, many of us. I'll, I'll look out there for questions, and, and I'll start. Oh, Dr. Comey, uh, Rich. That was really a very interesting talk. The thing that always strikes me about this is you have a lot of people involved, and how does it get paid? I, I can see three different models. One is each provider provides a different bill. Another one is that for a visit, there's a global charge, and you get whatever you need. And the third one would be you buy a year's worth of which model do you think would work best and which model are you using? 
Yeah, so for those that may not have heard the question, is how do you pay for it, which is the key ingredient. The three models you said, you're, you're spot on, and I think it depends on one, where you are, and two, the environment that you're in. So I'll give you the Pittsburgh answer, and then I'll give you the Cleveland answer. When I was in Pittsburgh, we set this up as a global payment model, and actually the health plan contracted with a group of patients for a year. And essentially, we were in essence capitated, if you really think about it. We basically had a set price. They built in the biologics. We put all this together. I was actually a little bit worried how that was going to work. But when I was leaving Pittsburgh, we were already at shared savings and about to go to shared risk. And I think they're actually in a risk model right now. That's if you have a dominant single payer. Most of us don't. In Pittsburgh, that was unique. In Cleveland, it's, it's actually initially paid for because the institution said, Cleveland Clinic said, we know value-based propositions are down the line. And if we don't and can't provide the service when we go contract with the national payers and, and also the Alcoas, the Bayers, the big um, commercial industry, we better have this. So just to be very transparent, they actually allowed us to hire the patients out of institutional, uh, sorry, positions out of institutional support. The other part you brought up, which is happening now, but I think will change with time. Cleveland Clinic now, each of the providers are dropping their own bill, but I think over time, as we have some of these national contracts set up, it will probably go the way of Pittsburgh. So United and Aetna have already said, we're interested in this model. They're contracting probably 2020 might be optimistic. It might be 2021 to look at a global payment per patient. And we also have an ACO that's now part of this as well. So it's a mix of the three that you just said. Help that Lauren. Hi. Yeah. Thanks, Miguel. That was great. Um, I've heard, I have a comment and then it's a question. Um, I've heard you speak on this before and I have always, uh, I, I look at everything from a health literacy lens. And I think you highlighted this, and I, I think what we know from health literacy, one of the reasons why I think this works is because you really decrease the complexity of the system for the patients. And we know that a lot of the health literacy problem is driven by the complexity of our healthcare system. Right. And patients who struggle with lower health literacy will visit the ER more. So you've really kind of demonstrated that very nicely. And I wonder if, um, and you didn't specifically mention it, if you thought about the health education piece of this, because we all consider ourselves as educators, but that's not always our primary mission when we're going in to see our patients. And, you know, nurses and physicians, we all have our niche and thing that we do. Um, and so it'd be interesting to actually know, and I don't know if you looked at it, how patients' understanding improved and also their level of engagement improved. And some of the health literacy work actually looks at taking, um, embedding health educators specifically or librarians in a visit. So as you kind of improve patients' health literacy, they could become more engaged and then they start doing more information seeking on their own and librarians can be a very useful tool in that. So just some other things that lower level than what you've looked at, obviously, you looked at endpoints for admissions and ED visits, but. Oh, I, I think that's, so we hadn't thought of the librarian or the health educator in the way that you described, which I think is phenomenal and, and it's a fantastic model. What we have done is the nurse practitioner now that's working with us, we're doing a lot more, and some of these are done virtually, where she's assigned a health maintenance visit 
where we get so involved in the patients in terms of their disease or the psychosocial problem, we sometimes lose track of vaccinations, pap smears, bone densitometer, some of the common kind of the PQRI checklist, if you will. So actually now the nurse practitioner, Annie's been doing a phenomenal job. We say, aside from the visits where they're seeing the medical home, I want you to do health maintenance and education. So one of the things she's doing as part of her visits are exactly without putting as eloquently as you just did, is the literacy around their understanding. And so some of the questions she's asking are, tell me what your understanding of the disease are. Tell me what your understanding of what Dr. Reguero or Dr. Steele told you in the clinic. And that, I agree, I think there's a big impact with that. The other part on a tangent, as you were talking, that made me think about it is sleep is a big part of this too. And one of the things we're working with, and, and Sonny's gonna probably head up our sleep component of this, and Eva Sigethy's obviously been very interested in sleep, is looking at other aspects. So literacy, sleep, adherence, those types of things. So that's an excellent point. Thank you. That was, I think it's really a wonderful model. Um, I'm wondering two things about patients over 65. Yeah. How, you know, you talk about the major payers. We don't deal with the major payers over 65. And once people, it's not just over 65, but you, you know, I saw my 92 year old with inflammatory disease the other day. How do you? bring in other expertise where these people really have complex comorbidity polypharmacy. And maybe I'm making a plug for the geriatricians, yep. but how do you how do you go beyond from a younger population who it really so much is encompassed in their IDD to complexity no, I, differences in payment. So it's I think that's a gap. And you're absolutely right. When we were in Pittsburgh, we purposely started by excluding patients. Um, actually, we didn't exclude over 65, but we excluded if their primary disease driver wasn't their IBD. And as you just alluded to, probably you see a patient that's their diabetes, their hypertension, their osteoporosis, the bone fractures, and then by the way, they have IBD on that list, and maybe they have renal insufficiency. Those are the patients we purposely initially excluded from the medical home because we thought probably with the geriatrician or the primary care doctor that were, they were better served. In Cleveland, now we're building out the neighborhood. We're almost doing this reverse medical home model where we're actually starting to link to our primary care. And some of them are, are geriatricians and saying, if you have a patient with a Crohn's disease and they have these comorbidities, we as the gastroenterologist won't be able to touch what you're doing as a geriatrician. That should be maintained. But let's try to set up platforms by which we're not interrupting the patient, we're not making them come to see us. And some of this is actually now being done virtually. And interestingly, we're doing more of these e-consults around some of these aspects. And they're incredible. I just did three of them this morning before I came here. They're essentially email consults where one of them was a 72-year-old who was in the geriatrician's office who had, they just had a question simply about the medicine. The other part, just very briefly, we are starting to include our pharmacists because of this polypharmacy, and I think that's another aspect I left off, is the pharmacists, I think, are an important part. Great. Yeah. I'm just kind of curious, then, so if you're doing more of these, like, virtual visits, like, how the patient interfaces through, like, to get to the office, like, in terms of access to the computer and sort of... 
So those that don't have access, is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I listed up front healthcare disparity being one of the biggest problems, and there are definitely patients who do not have access. I, I don't, I won't pretend right now to have an answer outside of some of the grants that allow us to actually provide them tablets. Then there's the education piece. Some of these patients have never used a smartphone. They don't know how to use anything that we take for granted. One thing that we're doing in some of these patients, we did this in Pittsburgh, I haven't done this yet in Cleveland, is for the patients who truly are in an area underserved, don't have access, we actually will have home visits by the social worker or the nurse. So some of that gap. Now, that can't obviously be done in our normal environments where we're living within the institution of a big hospital. It can be done when we link with payers who are looking at the model of how do we keep patients at home in direct care. So I think some of the health plans are now interested, but that is another gap, and I don't pretend that I have a... Like, with a second language in terms of... Correct. So, uh, yeah, so now we have everything in Spanish. Um, we have different, but yeah, so the you have to make sure to the, the literacy around the language also. Dr. Shah. So um, I have a question about the shared risk um, approach to, um, to, to this from between uh, providers sharing in the risk, understanding what the, the, the payer is supposed to, at its core, take on the risk. And how do you achieve buy-in outside of a tertiary care center within a health system when you're asking PCPs to be involved in sharing financial risk for these patients, and I'm actually speaking directly to um, what happened with ACOs. Yeah, so in these models, the risk is coming from a specialist, which again, is a specialist in the room, probably cringe, but as a primary care, you've been doing this for years. So when we look entering into the medical home, so right now some of the patients in Cleveland are in an ACO medical home with primary care, and they're in the medical home, and now we're wanting to enroll them in a medical home with a specialist. Some of that's a dialogue, too, between the primary care team and between us in terms of what makes sense. Actually, what I have found is the primary care provider in some of these patients is more than happy to transfer that patient into our shared risk environment as a specialist. What I think will not work, and maybe this is what you're alluding to, is if the specialist relies on the primary care to take on all the risk for the patient, where we serve, again, as that traditional consultant. So one is I think the health plans need to look at the specialist in a different way. So for example, in Pittsburgh, I was actually designated as a primary care. So the copays that I got were primary care copays. They weren't gastroenterology copays. Now that's not true in Cleveland because we haven't done contracts yet, but some of it's moving the risk to the specialist if we're gonna do these specialty contracts. I would. Well, in some places, you, the driver for this was that a few patients were high-end users. And it would seem to me that this is true all throughout an institution, not just limited to IBD Absolutely. or arthritis or diabetes. So why not make the medical home for the high users rather than about uh, rather than about a particular subspecialty? Where you and that addresses some of the issues that were raised by the previous question. So that is an outstanding point. And when I was leaving Pittsburgh, what they were actually talking about is deconstructing the specialist part and putting the secret sauce ingredients into this high utilizer 
they, they actually called it, it wasn't a high utilizer, I forget the name they were using, but it was some designation to go into this cohort of patients. The one, so the, the easy parts of it is you can then centrally have dietitians, social workers, psychologists, those that will cross many of these. The difficulty was trying to figure out then how to integrate the other specialists into this and kind of this spoken hub where the hub is the core group of psychosocial and dietary care, but then how to get the specialists engaged. So what they were looking at is these not micro hospitals take on a different meaning, I understand that, but there are these almost micro specialty centers where the specialists were seeing their patients all day as they normally would, but then there was this medical home component for these high utilizers. I think it's an excellent idea. I don't know how it's work, gonna work because we have, I haven't seen that enough, but that gets to the root cause of why hire many people to do many specialties, why not centralize it? And I think, I think it's a great idea. I, we haven't done that yet, but I do think that's a great idea. Well, there are a lot of great questions, and I'm, I'm sorry we can't get to all. I'm going to ask one final question before we break up, which is, Miguel, on your way up here from Boston, uh, you drove by uh, other components of Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health, which isn't just Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. We, you actually pretty much drove by five community group practices of gastroenterologists who we work with. So I hear you talking a lot about working with primary care providers. Yeah. But we at our institution here work with our colleagues who are community practice providers who are excellent gastroenterologists who do not have the resources and the time and everything that you showed in, in your home. So I know you must have the same issues and I'm wondering if you can comment on how you work with your community providers who are also outstanding clinicians but don't have the resources that you have at your big site. Yeah, so two brief answers to how to work with a community specialist. One is, um, I'll give you the Cleveland answer, and then I'll give you the other answer. The one is in Cleveland right now, and as I've mentioned to Corey, we have about 83 gastroenterologists that report to me, and half of them are in the community. So that's a little bit easier because we're all part of the same department. But then for the second, the community physician that may be affiliated but not part of the department, we do the same thing. In the EPIC platform, so one, we're starting to make sure that people understand what the medical home provides. Some of the patients, and this gets to the last question, some of the patients are accessing the medical home for the gastroenterologist, for the social worker, the psychologist, and the dietitian. Not for me, because their IBD care is perfect, and there's nothing that I'm going to add to the gastroenterologist that's seeing that patient, say, down in Summit, which is the south part of Cleveland. They're doing a great job with this. So I think what we're actually looking at is how can we, and this kind of gets to what you were saying, how can we actually bring those patients for the parts that cannot be provided by the three-person group and gastroenterologists an hour outside of Cleveland, but tap into the part that they really need? We're starting to do that. It's a tricky part with payment. That's the only part of it. But I think if we look at this from a value standpoint, that's probably where we're going to head. Great. Wonderful. Well, Miguel, I'd like to thank you on behalf of our institution and our uh, Department of Medicine so much for coming. Uh, it's been really wonderful to learn from you, and we look forward to the rest of your stay today. Thanks, Miguel. Thank you.